When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The one thing that they do tend to use against women is the threats of sexual assault. I remember hearing a lot of, okay, so all these other races and stuff, they want to get in your pants. And of course, all these years later, um, I could challenge that and say, actually, it was the guys in the movement that wanted to do that. This being a show about the perils of the extremes, the dangers of cult thinking, and the ease with which, well-meaningly, we slip into the warm, embracing arms of ideologies on both sides of the political spectrum, I thought it'd be great to interview someone who'd been there, done that, and gotten the t-shirt. I welcome today on the show Lauren Manning, a former far-right extremist who became a peace advocate and wrote a memoir called Walking Away From Hate. As she'll explain, she went through a really difficult time in her childhood, which is when she fell in with a really bad crowd on the far right. Today she documents her journey into the far right and back out again. I implore her bravery in coming on to speak about what is undoubtedly a very difficult subject for her. She's very succinct in her responses, which is fantastic. You might find me chiming in with all kinds of unfounded, nonsensical opinions in this particular episode. Try to just listen to her and ignore my bits. I do hope you enjoy it anyway. Pick up Walking Away From Hate in all the normal places. It's a great read, and I think it shows again how this whole punch-a-Nazi thing isn't always a good idea. It can feel good, of course. Um, Not on your fists. I don't know. I've never hit anyone. A lot of neo-Nazis and far-right adjacents are just like Lauren. They were moved and manipulated at difficult times in their lives, and they need a kind and empathetic voice to talk them down and bring them back from the edge. In other news, I've decided to go back to doing outros because the podcast was ending rather suddenly and it was a bit jarring. And I'm still showing the premieres of the video Monday and Thursday evenings at 9pm UK time. I'm in the chat, which you can see on the side if you're signed into YouTube. So do come down, come and say hi. Plenty of listeners get this you know the episode in the morning on audio they listen to that and then they watch the video later while chatting with me at night and it's a lovely community that we're starting to form coming up on the podcast are writer emma gannon gb news anti-woke guy calvin robinson and the one and only molly bloom as in molly's game if you've seen that movie the poker person who played with leonardo dicaprio and all that but now it's lauren manning back from the edge. Welcome to the edge, Lauren Manning. How are you doing? Good, thanks. How are you? I am good, thank you. Um, tell me, oh, well, we're going to talk about your fascinating uh, story. Tell me, before you fell into hate, what sort of what sort of teenager were you? What sort of teen? I know it was a difficult childhood. Um, if you want a lot of honesty here, I was a loner and an outcast. <laughs> oh, oh, that, why and why? Why is that? You know, I think actually it dates back to like way early childhood. So my dad served thirty years on the police force, and I don't blame him for being overprotective, considering some of what he had seen. 
However, he often brought it home with him. So he worked in the city of Toronto, and uh, we lived in this very small suburb called Whitby, where nothing ever happens there, nothing probably ever will. Well, hopefully not. Um, so, I mean, he just couldn't separate the two worlds, right? He didn't want us influenced by other kids, even though admittedly years later I can say I was the bad influence at times. <laughs> So, I mean, we were never really uh, socialized the way other kids were. Um, I was one of those kids who did anything not to be seen in class. Right, and they probably didn't expect this kind of thing to be happening. They kind of expected, you know, the book that followed and stuff. What's the reaction been like from, like, old friends and stuff? And what about not just the book, but how you, you know, fell into, into hate and extremism? Um, so, you know what? I've actually had all good feedback from people who've uh, took the time to reach out to me saying, okay, I never would have guessed that you would have fell into this years ago. But, man, I'm proud of the work you're doing. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, the work you're doing is amazing. So the, what was – I think what's interesting, I think, about your book, what's one of the many interesting things is, of course, you know, you're you're from a middle-class background, I believe. Um, and I'm probably showing my own middle-class bias myself and bigotry or something. But when I think of a particular kind of American metal music – hate i don't imagine maybe middle class people and certainly not women um so were you something of an outlier you know you'd be surprised this could happen to anyone i even get people asking me hey like your dad served 30 years on the force how on earth could you have fallen into this and i'm like it happens regardless of jog regardless of economic status regardless of anything yeah i bet i bet it's almost especially because your dad served on the force because it's almost like a teenage rebellion thing right yeah and i have to admit sometimes kids of cops can be the worst yeah yeah, I can imagine that. Everybody's just always trying to rebel against our parents, aren't we? So I've, I've noticed that recently. It's like when I was young, it was like teenagers were all crazy and doing drugs and stuff. And now the teenagers, well, a lot of them anyway, at universities and stuff, they're like really, really clean. And like that's bad for the environment and stuff because their parents were the mad ones. And I suppose that these ones, they'll have kids who are mad themselves. So does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. <laughs> So what actually happened to draw you towards towards hate? You were getting into... Actually, you know what? Tell me, what is black metal? Because I don't know anything about metal. What's black, is it different to heavy metal? Is that a different thing? So it's, uh, it's just a subgenre within uh, the metal uh, scene. So it's a lot darker. It touches on a lot more subject matter that's very taboo. So you can see why kids like myself would have been drawn to that kind of thing. A lot of the time, if we feel outcasted, um, that's when we're drawn to taboo subject matter. It's fascinating to people like my younger self. Yeah, and you were drawn into that. You were playing bass, is that right? Yeah, so I've been playing bass since I was about 14. It was kind of uh, an outlet for me at the time. And I actually still have that same uh, secondhand bass that my parents bought me when I was younger. So that thing has seen literally everything from rock and roll camp when I was in high school to the hate movement to whatever I do with it now. Wow, are you? You must be pretty good by now. Do you play stuff that? Because I don't know any metal. So metal's most—it's got that voice a lot of the time, doesn't it? The screaming voice, which obviously I imagine that is an acquired taste, like anything else. That if you listen to it enough, you start to—it starts to sound really interesting and different. Um, there are loads of bands like that that I'm thinking of. And then, but when you f first hear it, someone like me, because I don't know any metal, it all just sounds quite—I don't even know. But it's the screamy stuff. Do you play anything else with, with bass? Do you play, would you know, like, do you play the Beatles and stuff like that? Actually, quite a few things. So I remember my instructor when I was uh, first starting, he had my brother and I doing a bit of everything. 
So his thing was classic rock, and then I think I freaked him out, actually, when I told him, hey, guess what, I just got into metal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Oh, well, that's the thing, isn't it? You, it's like you can't you can't be into anything anymore without like the, the societal baggage that comes along with it. So if you get into something like metal, maybe there are presumptions of like what's, you know, it's just the, it might just be the music that you like, and then the presumptions of what that means, and then that obviously leads to the community. And the, I don't know what shapes what, if it's the stereotype about the music or if it's the community itself that shapes this sort of uh, extremism or the anger that we might associate with some metal stuff. As you were getting more into metal, uh, you came across a recruiter, didn't you? Yeah, so I got this random message on Facebook one day. Um, I was in Nocturnal Mortem's Facebook page. So I get this random message saying, I was wondering if you are National Socialist or just listen to NSBM, National Socialist Black Metal. And I'm thinking to myself, who is this guy? What on earth is he talking about? So not wanting to sound stupid, I responded anyway, saying, I just listened to the music, dude. <laughs> oh, yeah, I read that, and you didn't, because it was NS or something. And I, because even when I was reading that, I didn't know what NS actually stood for. It's National Socialist, right? That's Right. And what is, what is National Socialism? So everyone kind of has their different spin on it. Um, this entire movement, they'll often go back to the 14 words coined by David Lane. So it goes, we must secure the existence of our people in a future for white children. And that was actually the first time I didn't puke in my mouth saying that years later. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. But at the time, I mean, you were so young as well. And I think you had just just lost your father. Is that right? Yeah. So I lost my dad at 16. Um, Age 17 is when all of this started with uh, this recruiter. So that led to sort of, I guess you turned to drinking for a while as well. Yeah. So the drinking happened within a couple months of my dad's passing. So as soon as I figured out that um, my social skills, or as I perceived them to be a lot better at the time, um, that's when I took to it, pardon my French, but flies on shit. (laughs) Yeah, you were drinking a lot. I mean, to the point that you developed um, some sort of condition after a few years, right? Yeah, it was cirrhosis at uh, the age of 22. So I won't list off the symptoms for you. Um, you probably don't need to know. Yeah. But I just remember going to the doctor and saying, you know, what's up with this? I'm not really understanding what's going on. So after a couple test results came back, he said, okay, you have to stop now. And by now, I really mean now. Have you had a, any drink at all since then? Nine and a half years sober now. Wow. Congratulations. Thanks. <laughs> That's hard for a, a lot of people. Hey, um, what when you say you don't want to list off the symptoms so i wasn't going to ask about the symptoms but now i now i want to know yeah so i think the main one actually was uh getting sick after every drink which was kind of unusual for me at the time and the reason that happens is because i mean picture the liver like a sponge eventually it can't take anymore oh it was just done yeah man what's it like getting that drunk that like that and that often are you just like living on like it's, it does it become like water to you like beer yeah so you know, it depends what time in my life we're talking about. So in my first couple of years, I was one of those blackout drinker types that you just did not want to be around. So that being said, I had to rely on a lot of my notes and stuff from when I was in therapy to, to finish some parts of that book. Um, but anyways, it did get done. And then later years, I was one of those five beers a day drinkers. So I would come home and instead of wanting it, I needed it. Right. And what would happen if you didn't have it? I would start going through withdrawals. The one thing I remember actually when I did clean up is like the body aches. That was probably the worst for me. And also the irritability. It is a physical thing, isn't it? With alcohol. I think people don't realize sometimes like once you've become dependent on it, 
like it is a there's a physical like like with heroin there's a real physical withdrawal yeah and i think a lot of people overlook alcoholism just because it's legal so it's more socially acceptable right yeah but i mean the reality is like it runs on both sides of my family both my mom's and my dad's right there is definitely a genetic disposition as well isn't there man it would it be too cliche to to suggest you were filling the hole in your life from the loss of your father not cliche whatsoever that's just true uh-huh and also trying to repress um yeah sorry i was also trying to repress something as well so i'm bisexual i just didn't want to admit it to myself when i was younger and i also grew up around a lot of conservatism so i wasn't really sure how that would fit into the mix Right, right. Yeah, that must, would it have been, did you feel like you weren't able to come out around your family? There was no way I was going to do that when I was in my teen years. I came out when I was 25, actually. But I mean, hey, better late than never. How old are you now? 31. Has it been a better past six years since you were out? I would say so. And the thing is, I'll no longer accept partners where they want to change me or well, or where um, they'll say, okay, well, I'll turn you straight. I have heard that before. Bloody hell. The arrogance the arrogance to say that. Oh my God. Um, tell me, so so this recruiter came along like at your worst point and that's when they pinpoint people, isn't it? And recruiter is a funny word in itself, like an extremist rec- recruiter because it makes me think of like a professional, uh, a really a, a sort of official term. Uh, do, do these extremist groups run like that? Are they quite, or, or is it just because I was picturing just a bunch of guys? Uh, so it depends what uh, group we're talking about. Each of them kind of operates differently. As far as the timing goes, I do think that was coincidence. Was I personally targeted? No. And I'll tell you why. Because, um, so this guy in the book, the recruiter, um, he had actually sent that same message to 10 different people and I was the only one to respond. So his tactic, it was one of those things where, okay, I'll just send out a bunch of messages and see what I get back. That's so weird. And I guess he must have told you that later as like a point of maybe you, did you feel proud that you, that you had responded to his call? Um, you know, when I heard that, I didn't really know what to think. Um, cause at that point we were starting to not get along. We were, uh, living together homeless at that time. So there was a lot of tension and stuff in the first place. And uh, this is just before he took off to go to the other side of the country. Um, so he had told me this. I didn't really know what to think. Right. Okay. And when and this was your first, and you were what, 16? Is that right? At this time, I would have been 18 when we were having this conversation. Okay. And it's online and he's asking you all this stuff. And he started to ask you, I guess he started with the music and then he was asking you about like being Italian and stuff. Oh, yeah. So the funny thing is actually I have been uh, through genetic testing before and this is actually after um, all my years of involvement I was just curious about it so as it turns out um, according to DNA I'm not good enough to be there Ah. but uh, we'll get into that later if you'd like but anyways he was suspicious of the Italian side of our family so he would say oh I hope you're northern Italian because I don't consider southern Italians in particular Sicilians to be pure enough God, it's such a weird mindset, isn't it? It's a weird set of rules of like the people. Because yeah, first, I mean, we go back like a thousand generations, right? And nobody knows where they're from that far back. And so there's this thing of like, if you're three, you know, where, where were your grandparents and great grandparents from? And if it's a slightly wrong place, like slightly south in Italy, then that's not quite right. So is there that once you were in the group, well, is there like a competitiveness about who's purer oh all the time um so this is actually one thing that i used to ask some of the guys because now this recruiter he wasn't the only one who questioned some of my background 
one of the guys when I said Italian had said, oh, Northern Italian, I hope. And at the time I told him, yeah, sure. Even though I didn't actually know specifics, this DNA test would come back all these years later. And of course, I'm Sicilian. Oh my God. What would they have done to you? You know what, actually, I when I got that test result, I was thinking, man, where was this years ago when I wanted to leave? Because I thought that that was kind of the easy way out. I could just show them that and then they'd let me go with no fight. But you know, it's hard for me to say. Might they have like been aggressive towards you had they known you had Sicilian blood? Yeah, it's hard to say, honestly. I think it depends which member we're talking about. Um, but taking uh, consideration, say, my boyfriend at the time, the one that I left in order to leave the movement, he had plainly said, if you found out, then I couldn't be with you. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn dot com slash heretics to learn more. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on what could go right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. It's so frustrating because you want to like go back and go, well, if I find out that you're from somewhere else, then I won't be with you. Like what makes you so sure you're like Mr. Pure Person? What what was his lineage? And, and what is what's the ultimate lineage? Where's the best possible place for, from this mindset to be from? Yeah, so it depends who you ask. Um, so my ex-boyfriend, he's half English, half Scottish. 
Um, a lot of the guys, I want to say about half of them actually are Polish descent. Oh. And um, I remember early on, German was uh, kind of the DNA to have, <laughs> if we want to put it that way. Interesting. I think I'd score quite high in some respects because I'm English. And then my background is, um, like, I think my great-grandparents were from Ukraine and, like, Russia and Poland and stuff like that. Is that quite high? Um, so you would be accepted there. It's just I don't recommend that you infiltrate or try to join one of these groups. Ah, well, the other thing is, which I didn't mention, of course, I'm Jewish, and that that's that would be a problem, wouldn't it? Uh, definitely. <laughs> what would they do to me if I, like, came over and I was like, hey, guys, my name's Andrew, I just want to have a beer... By the way, I'm Jewish, just so you know, but can we just like have a little drink and watch the football together? Mm, I don't think I'd want to see the end result of that. Oh, no. Would they hit me? Probably. They were that bad then. So this was quite... Did you ever watch... Do you know who Louis Thoreau is? No. Oh, he's an English do documentary maker, and he did a documentary about neo-Nazis in the States, and there was this moment when they said, are you Jewish? And he's not. And it, but it was a really tense moment because he didn't want to say that he wasn't because he said it, it, he thought that it would... Uh, that it that it wasn't right to say because it shouldn't matter, and they got very aggressive with him, and it's it's a really tense uh, bit of TV. It's really good though. Maybe I'll send it to you later. It's like it's really cool, like to watch. Like wow, um, he did well. So um, yes, you were recruited in then, and then started to adopt those ideas. I guess is that is that right? Yeah. So a lot of the time, everything else comes first, and then the ideology comes second. The ideology, it's uh, something that they just expect you to know. So you basically have to self-indoctrinate. Right. They, oh, that's fascinating. So they weren't sitting there, like, sitting you down and saying, like, here's what you're going to know. So I would get recommendations for websites to check out. Stormfront is actually the one uh, coming to memory right now. And, you know, I look back on that site and I think how ridiculous everything sounds. But at the time, I thought that I was acquiring, like, all the secret knowledge that nobody else had. So you can just imagine how much that inflated my teenage ego at the time. Yeah, I absolutely. And that's so interesting you put it that way, actually, because I've just been... Firstly, I'm writing a book about the, the nature of secrets and the psychology of secrets and how they can be used for power and different means and things like that. And secondly, I've just had somebody on called Amanda Montel who talks about cults, and she talks about every type of cult from extremist cults, like I guess the one you were in, you could say that's a cult, to, to religious ones, to uh, multi-level marketing companies, uh, all these different kinds of cults. And it's sounds exactly like like what you were saying it's that people feel they're getting a little bit of secret information they might know something that others don't and that connects people within the tribe and creates an us versus them does that does that sort of does that explanation speak to you you know what that's pretty much point on so the thing is like it's a false sense of empowerment as i would sum all of it up so right so, and and the other thing with um with often racist views I've read, is that hatred comes from feeling threatened. And there's evidence done by academics where they've like numbed the part of the brain that is the threat sensor, uh, which I think is the amygdala, or it might have been another bit of the brain. And when they did that, um, people's views became uh, less extreme in whatever direction they were going. And there was much less racism, much less hatred towards minorities, and much less um, anti-immigration views. Uh, people, people, you know, so does that also ring true to you? Was, that, did, was it like you felt threatened by uh, other tribes and races at the time? Very much. So I should elaborate on this, actually. Um, the town that I grew up in, it is mostly white, so I didn't really have a lot of prior experience with anyone who isn't like me or doesn't look like me. Um, so the gospel that uh, 
this recruiter was uh, giving me, it was, hey, so see all these people that you've never met? Well, they're a threat. Here's what they're going to do to you. And, you know, touching on really sensitive subject matter, I will tell you this. Um, the one thing that they do tend to use against women is the threats of sexual assault. I remember hearing a lot of, okay, so all these other races and stuff, they want to get in your pants. And of course, all these years later, um, I could challenge that and say, actually, it was the guys in the movement that wanted to do that. The number of times I had to fend those guys off at parties. Oh, man. I'm not surprised, actually. But I can imagine that, you know, so so this is the, the scenario, I suppose, is that you were going through a really difficult time as a teenager. Um, you fell into drinking. These people sort of picked you up and then they've said, you're with us, you'll get this special information and secret stuff that other people don't know. And these people you've never met, which is like, you know, black people and other races and stuff, um, they're trying to rape you and stuff like that, right? Yeah, meanwhile, that never actually happened at the hands of anybody else and so they were so they were trying to get at you um and 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 is that also were you one of the very few women in the in the extremist group yeah not the only one but definitely one of few and i remember a lot of people asking me about this actually it's like oh how are you in a group what uh there's very few women and and at the time i was one of those girls where i'm like oh i only hang around guys girls are stupid blah 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 <laughs> that has obviously changed i do have female friends now <laughs> right and you you adopted as part of the group because it, this is the thing once you're in you're in with like all of the different ideologies of the group right and you can't just sort of adhere to one and not all the others and, and so some of the others were um quite misogynist weren't they yeah so a lot of the time uh, from other women, and actually coming from myself too, this is what we would say, is uh, we're happier in secondary roles. But meanwhile, you know, you look at the reality of everything that's going on. Were we happy at the time? Definitely not. Yeah, so you found yourself, what kinds of things did you find yourself thinking and saying? I was actually always trying to kind of balance who I am with uh, the rhetoric, because I'm sure you can already tell within like the first half an hour, I'm not the subservient type whatsoever. <laughs> No. But it was always like this mask that I had to put on for acceptance. Just trying to imagine it now. I'm just, I just, it really, it's, I guess it annoys, I feel anger towards these people, but then could, is there an argument to suggest that they, they are, they're sort of victims of the ideology in themselves? I don't mean to be defending the racists in any sense, but they fell into it presumably for similar reasons that you did. Oh, I would think so. Because, I mean, the thing is, like, working with uh, clients and stuff coming out of uh, this movement, as I've been doing for the last couple of years, I figured out everybody had a reason for being there. Everyone had grievances. They're just like me. Just different stories, obviously. That's so fascinating, isn't it? And I guess that's a case of, you know, that's a societal thing where there's too many people who are left out and feel like they're not part of communities Um you know, how, how, how does one approach that? How does one begin to fix that? Um, so one thing I should say is that our program at Life After Hate, all of it is self-referred, so they want to be there. All we do is put the message out and hope that somebody hears it. Wow, that's interesting. So they're already sort of halfway out, I understand. So when you were part of the, was the, what was the name? You were in two different extremist groups, is that right? Yeah, so the first one, it was uh, one that was loosely tied with uh, Blood and Honor here in Canada. So this is before they were designated as a terrorist organization. Um, and the second group was called the Vinland Hammerskins. Hammerskins have been around since forever. I remember them being really active in the 90s. It slowed down, and I think actually they're picking up again from what I heard. Right, and when you were in these groups, what kinds of activities did you do that were like 
these are racist acts. I mean, do you do activities that are not racist? Are racists sitting around playing Monopoly? Or is everything sort of tinged with like a <laughs> racist thing? Uh, it's more like racists sitting around having drinking contests. <laughs> God, it's so fueled by alcohol, isn't it? I guess it is that thing you said of like filling that hole, just like the group itself fills a hole by being part of it. The alcohol sort of continues that that tradition. Yeah, so I'll just get this out of the way really quickly. I also um, put it to people this way that I had to drink in order to put up with some of those other members. <laughs> So anyways, that aside, um, so the other activities, it depends which group we're talking about once again. So the first group, uh, the one that was affiliated with Blood and Honor, a lot of it was handing out flyers, spreading propaganda, stuff like that. And for me, at the time, I would have considered myself a halfway decent writer, although I think I'm a lot better with it now. So a lot of the time it would be posting on Stormfront, other groups, stuff like that, to try to get people motivated. And it did work to some degree. Um, and then by the time I got into the second group, the Hammerskins, um, so at the time they were really tied in with the music scene. And let me tell you, the first show that I ever went to, I did not need to pay for my own drinks that whole night. I had like upwards of 20 guys offering to buy it for me. I was a 19-year-old female at the time. This was an asset to them. And also, as soon as I told them that I played bass, I knew how to do the setup at the shows and stuff. That's when I was invited around more. I see. And as a woman, do you think you gave them, I suppose, a respectable or a kind face when it was when it came to, I suppose, evangelizing? Perhaps a more softened one. I think that's what they were after. So it's so insidious, really. And and this, and and of course, I guess these are drunk guys who are lonely and sad. So they were coming on to you a lot quite a bit um i remember that stopped actually when i started dating one of the members um this is the guy that i was with for about four or five years i want to say but i i just remember being at gatherings and stuff when he wouldn't be there that's when i would have to fend them off because it was uh, the mentality was something to the degree of oh cool the boyfriend's not here right were, th- were these guys i'm just trying to imagine them are they like skinheads yeah, so a lot of them did look the part. I'm just trying to kind of remember the image right now. Um, and for me, I was no exception. I looked like one, too. I looked like I was into it. So trying to remember how I looked at one time. So I did do the combat boots thing. Um, a lot of the time I would wear black garrisons with white laces. Uh, faded jeans or camo pants. Um, t-shirt. And at one time I did have the underside of my head shaved. So you had the look and everything. You're going out uh, trying to recruit people now, I suppose. How are people responding to you? Um, You know what? There was a couple of people at uh, the homeless shelter that I stayed at at one time where they kind of played the part just uh, so that I would like them. And I think one of them actually was kind of already into the rhetoric. But as far as the others, it wasn't very well received whatsoever. A lot of it was challenging me, mocking me for what I was into, any number of things. So I remember one time at uh, the shelters, like this conversation literally just brought back this memory for me. So we were at uh, breakfast one time in the common area of the place. And I remember this girl yelling at me across the room, hey, Nazi. Eventually, I got a pretty short fuse on me, or I did at the time. I would like to think it's a little bit better now. So at the time, I had enough of her within the first couple minutes, and I threw a glass of water at her. Is that the water inside the glass or the glass as well? Uh, both. Yeah. Did it get her? It did. What was the result? Um, so thankfully, I was not discharged from that place. I should have been, but I wasn't. And uh, 
you know, everyone else saw it as, okay, it was two women having a fight. <laughs> like, what else is new in this place? Did it hurt her? I don't think it did, honestly. Because, you know, she still sounded the same afterwards. <laughs> it's just that I tried to refrain as much as possible just so that I wouldn't get kicked out of that place. Because it was my only uh, residence at the time. Oh, and so this was somebody... Okay, this was at, like, a shelter, you're saying. And that and that's because you weren't, um, at the time, close with your family, with your mother? Yeah, so this is... At the time, I would have been between, like, 18 or 19. Um, and my mom and I were talking at this point, but there was still quite a bit of tension. So moving back home just wasn't really an option. And, of course, the members in the group and stuff, there have no help, right? Yeah, I get that. That's, that's Which is a shame, because the whole point is, you know, the one thing you're supposed to get, really, is the community. Yeah, the brotherhood. It's just, I never actually saw it there at the end of the day. So, you threw this glass at this woman. What were you doing that made her think you were a Nazi? And the other thing is, why did that offend you? Because isn't that the whole point, being a Nazi? I can't remember why I was in such an irritable mood that day. Probably just no alcohol in my system yet. <laughs> um... Not like I can blame all of it on drinking. I could also blame my attitude at the time. Again, I just had a short fuse. And um, anger management is not really something that you learn when you're in this movement. But is is it an insult to call a Nazi, or to call a neo-Nazi a Nazi? I, I guess it's the way it's said, right? Because would they not call each other Nazis? Yeah, so it's the way it's said. And coming from someone outside of the group, yes, it is taken as an insult. So as far as why she um, caught on to what I was into, well, I had a hate symbol tattooed on the side of my neck at one time. Uh, how, could you get that removed? Yeah, so I had it laser removed. It took about six to seven appointments. It is very painful, but I will say it's totally worth it. Oh, can I see to see if there's any, if you can notice it? I can't see anything. Yeah, so it does a pretty good job. Um, if my camera quality was better, you would see a little bit of scarring. That's just because I didn't wait long enough between appointments one time. Okay, well, well, look, you'd rather have a tiny bit of scarring than like a Nazi symbol, right? Yeah, I'll take scarring any day over that. <laughs> yeah, I've got um, a small scar at the back of my head where like the hair just doesn't grow, just a tiny little, it just never has done. And I, I'm relieved every day that it's it's that and not, um, you know, shaped like a swastika or something. That would be bad. <laughs> yeah, you could find some way to hide it, I imagine. You'd have to, wouldn't you? If you had alopecia that was exactly shaped like a, like a, a swastika, it would be you'd have to just shave your head, I think. Yeah, it would look pretty suspicious. <laughs> but the shaved head's just as bad. Well, it's not just as bad, is it? It's worse to have the swastika, I think. Yeah, either way, there's probably some way to hide it if you did have that. Thankfully, you don't, though. <laughs> <laughs> as far as you know, no, I don't have that. So then, um, are there moments from when you were like in your heyday or in the in the group in these groups that stick in the mind of like really quite nasty things that that today keep you up at night? Um. You know, the only thing that actually kept me up at night for the longest time was the time that I got jumped. You probably read about that. So that was trying to leave the one group after repeated drama and bullshit with them. So I learned uh, this one the hard way that it's not easy and it doesn't happen overnight to leave one of these groups. So anyways, um, the way this all played out was one of the guys who I was still on okay terms with after all of that. He says, hey, do you want to meet up and hang out? So... Stupid me, I go there without uh, anybody else along with me. And I don't see him there, but I see all the other people. So there was four other people um, that I had bad blood with now. And that's when it clicked. I'm like, oh shit, I just got set up. 
And as it turns out, I did, because I found myself laying on the ground after taking a pretty bad blow to the head. Basically, what happened is I got thrown into a brick wall. And I'm trying to remember the rest of it as best I can. Keep in mind there was a severe concussion involved. Um, so I remember getting kicked from like all different angles. And the one thing that I did remember actually when I was in therapy trying to deal with this, like that's common with therapy, is that uh, certain things get repressed and then they get brought up later. So I remember actually somehow standing up and knocking the knife out of the one guy's hand. I don't know how I did that after taking that. Yeah. If I was holding a knife, I would hold it really tightly. So not, I've never held a knife in that respect, but I would hold it so tightly it would be really hard to knock it out of my hands. You must have really like, hit his hand hard. Well, he wasn't expecting it. I think I shocked him. So this was all going... And, and what about things that you did? Are there things that you feel shame about what, what, what you did back in the day? I think as far as um, I go, it's some of the stuff that came out of my mouth. Because the reality is, okay, so I've never physically harmed anybody who didn't look like me. However, words can be just as bad. You can you can swear and say horrible things on this this show if you want. I mean, what what would you, what sort of so would you see somebody who was maybe black or something and shout something at them? Uh, sometimes that did happen. Um, other times, actually, it was some of the lyrical content that I wrote. Because I remember actually writing a couple lyrics and stuff um, for myself and for some of the guys that would also be involved in the music thing. And, you know, I could look back on some of it and I'm like, this sounds fucking ridiculous. Like, how did I ever think any of this? But actually, at the same time, you probably remember reading about this, how eventually I was at the very last show that I ever attended and I froze up on stage and then said, okay, fuck this, I'm done and walked off. That took some guts. And that was because you stopped believing in, the, in the, the message. Yeah, so the thing is, I still knew the lyrics, right? It's just, did I agree with them anymore? No, I did not. And, you know, I have a bunch of people asking me about uh, this nowadays. It's like, oh, that's such a badass move. And I'm like, frig, I don't even plan anything. That was not planned. <laughs> I suppose it's quite comforting to believe. It's like Dungeons and Dragons or something, that there's like these bad guys and they're the people with the different skin color. Uh, I can see how that must be very comforting to, to oh, the Jews are stealing all of this and that, but we're the good guys and we're on a mission to, to, to purify the world. So even when you were, you found yourself shouting at minorities and stuff, you must have felt um, really like you were on the right side of history in that moment, that you were doing the right thing. Yeah, so you do get um, quite a rush from doing stuff like that. Um, I always say this, that righteous anger does feel very good. It's just eventually you burn out and that did happen to me and that so what started to make you um i don't want to say see the light but just uh feel less hatred towards people different from you um so there's too many incidents to count honestly um but the one that i always will remember is somebody overdosing right in front of me thankfully i was alone otherwise nothing would have got done um, so this person, a uh, different race, um, but at the time I was in panic mode, so I wasn't seeing his race. I was just seeing someone who needed help. So I remember calling 911, and uh, so they got there, thankfully, within time. The guy did live, but I remember them telling me, you know, it's kind of weird that you saved his life, because they saw all the stuff all over me, all the hate symbols and everything. And at this point, I'm tired, I'm irritable. I'm like, just get him to the fucking ER, please. <laughs> There's more important things to worry about than how I look. That's like the real, that's a really filmic moment. I can imagine that in a TV series or a movie, you know? So what, it was the paramedics, was it, that was saying that to you? Yeah, 
instead of worrying about getting this guy to the ER. But anyways, my ranting aside. <laughs> I'm seeing it as like they're like getting this guy into like an ambulance or whatever and they turn and they go, wait, why did you, why did you do that? You've got the hate symbols. And you're like, because I just saved a life. That's how I'm imagining it. Yeah. So anyways, I got the call a couple days later saying that he was okay. And I'm like, all right, well, I mean, he'll probably stay mad at me for a couple weeks and then come around, I would imagine. Because I had seen this guy around before, it's just I didn't really know him super well. But you helped, like, save his life. I think it may have been a suicide attempt, if I'm being very transparent here. Oh, okay, so that's why he might stay mad at you. Yeah. But that gives you a sort of power, doesn't it? When you've sort of saved someone's life or you've helped somebody... I guess that made you feel good and filled a hole in a way that maybe the racist stuff wasn't. You know, it was weird, actually, because um, at the time of this incident, it was early on in my involvement. I was only 18 and kind of newly on the streets at the time. So whenever the guys would talk about harming people that aren't like us, that's when this flashback would come back. It would always stop me right in my tracks of doing any physical harm. So, I mean... This is going to sound somewhat cheesy and maybe profound, but who saved who that night? <laughs> no, that makes sense. It's, that's that's wow, what a story. I like that. Where were your where were your where was your mother in all of this and, and other family? Uh, she was at home, probably up all night, uh, worrying about whatever I may have been doing. Did you have you know head to head talks a lot? Was was there? There must have been some explosiveness. I mean, she can't have agreed with your life choices at that point. Yeah. So we were out of contact for easily five six months there when I first left home and there was obviously good reasoning for that um so I remember emailing her and saying hey I'm all right I got a place to stay so on and so forth at the time I was working so I was telling her about that it's just we found that uh, getting into ideological discussions just was not a good idea so we tried to avoid that as best as we could it's difficult because we all want different things for you know, potential offspring, and we want we like to imagine them in certain ways and stuff. And I, I think very few people who are not themselves racist um, can even imagine that their child would grow up to to be one. So it must have been difficult for her. Yeah, everybody thinks, oh, never my child. And then it happened. Yeah, so that's actually the reason why my mom is very honest about our up our upbringing in the book. She's not going to sugarcoat it and say, oh, I fell in love with them at first sight. They were perfect little angels. Like, I remember her saying, oh, yeah, one's failing in school, one's doing this. <laughs> but I can appreciate that now. It's to be real about things. Because let's face it, there is all kinds of pressure behind being a parent. You got to be perfect, even though no one actually is. Did she blame herself? Probably quite often. I remember um, during the editing of the book, um, someone had called her out on it saying, you know, you can stop blaming yourself for all of this anytime you want. It's hard, though, isn't it? It is. Hmm. How does it make you feel to think of your mom... Uh, feeling guilty about all of this? For a while there, I did hold on to a lot of guilt about that. Um, especially the point where uh, she talks about, oh, what if uh, I get the call from the police someday saying that I'm never going to see my kid again? So realistically, I can't do much about those days. Those are already gone. So I just figure, okay, all I can do is make better decisions now. What was it right? What was it like writing the book with your mom? I think it was a lot more difficult than both of us thought. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, the thing is, my mom would ask me difficult questions. I don't think she was necessarily expecting me to do the same back. Oh, so what would you ask her? So the funny thing is, I think we mentioned this at some point. Um, it's been a while since I've actually went over our manuscript or our book at all. So the thing is, she had a falling out with uh, her side of the family, I want to say when I was about 15 or 16, a year before our dad passed away. 
So the thing is, she was looking for a place to belong to. So I remember her trying to kind of change herself or like mold us in a certain way so she could fit in with whatever adult group that she was trying to at the time. And one of those actually being my dad's side of the family. They're kind of all prim and proper and stuff, um, and we're just not. Right, and she and she wanted you to fit in with them. Yeah, and I remember I had a falling out um, with my cousin, actually, because she found out about my involvement. So I remember coming home, actually, that one Christmas, my mom going, okay, you're going to apologize to your cousin. And I'm like, no, I'm not, because uh, both of us were at fault for that one. And this led to the breakdown in, in the relationship with your mom. Um, yeah, so at first, actually, that uh, falling out, that was kind of one of the catalysts. As far as uh, my mom saying, okay, I've had enough, you need to leave. Like, if you don't want to be part of this family. So that was one of the many things that drove her to that point. And then uh, coming home, we had to kind of figure out how are we going to navigate around all of this. Yeah. And and now and and then write a book together, which is uh, no small task. That that I mean, most people would start arguing together. You know, being in that kind of proximity and having to deal with like a, you know the creativity around the writing process. Um, so that must have led to a few arguments. Yeah, and the thing is, one thing to keep in mind since this is a dual perspective memoir is you can obviously see it. Everybody has their own perception of things. Like everyone's going to see something differently. And we were told, honestly, that's fine. We don't need to agree on everything as we're writing this. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. What would you say now to um, a mother or father dealing with something similar where their 15, 16, 18-year-old kid seems to have joined an extremist cult? I would say reach out for help. You don't need to feel alone. Um, so Life After Hate does have um, a video support group for families. My mom actually volunteers to help run it. So, <clears throat> I mean, she may not be able to fix all your problems, but I mean, she does have valuable insight. Yeah, that's good. Community, I suppose, isn't it? Um, oh, we didn't talk about actually like how difficult it was to leave uh, the cult because, I mean, I was, again, this book I was reading about cults recently um, – and when I was trying to understand uh, how hard it is to leave, um, it was uh, Amanda Montel talking about cults. She was talking about what she said, why don't you imagine leaving a, a toxic relationship, which people, you know, loads of people can relate to that, even if they've not been in different kinds of cults or extremist groups, how hard that is because um, you have that sense of community and obligation. You feel bad for the people. You develop those kinds of relationships. So you can't just uh, leave. And you, did, you didn't leave overnight, did you? I wish I could have, but I didn't. Um, I learned my lesson the first time after getting jumped. So I said, okay, this time there's more than enough reasons for me to leave, but I have to fade off slowly and do this somehow. So my last tie to the group um, that was broken by 2015 was splitting up with uh, my boyfriend at the time. And I remember driving home that night thinking, I'm finally free. But I mean, as it turns out, there was still certain behavior that I needed to get rid of, like just residual behavior and stuff. I already stopped believing in the rhetoric at that point, so at least that was out of the way at the time. And I was stuck with all these tattoos and stuff that I didn't want. 
Oh God, yeah. And then gradually, did you get guilt from some of the, like this particular boyfriend and also some of the other members? The one thing I remember actually was a lot of them, yes, trying to guilt me back. But uh, when that wouldn't work, I would get threats. I remember one of them saying to me that I'll supposedly be hung off of a lamppost. That comes from the Turner Diaries. And I was just so numb to everything at that point. I remember one of them saying, you'll be the first on the day of the rope. So on the phone, I'm like, oh, okay. And then I hung up. <laughs> Do you have any contact with these people now or in, in recent years? Currently, no. Do you know, happen to know if like they're still in the extremist groups? Have any of the others left? Uh, you know what? I remember getting a message over mine and my mom's Facebook group one day. Um, one of the people that I used to hang out with wanting the book. And he said, yeah, so I left in 2015 and I remember this piece that Lauren wrote. I was reading it and it actually gave me the courage to try to stay out because I figured out it was actually possible by then. So that was a pretty good feeling. Um, it's nice to see someone else on the same path as well that I used to know. But as far as the rest, I have no idea. You must feel tempted to sort of reach out with others who have left. Or, or do you not at all? Do you just want to put that part of your life behind you? You know, it's hard to say where they're at. And for my own safety, that's why I don't do it. Because you never know. Yeah. Are you just like in a different place uh, geographically now? Because these were you concerned these people might come and get you? Um, thankfully... That has not happened in recent years, and I don't think it will. Like, I don't think I matter much to them anymore. And I say that in the most positive way possible. <laughs> I wonder, Yeah, well, I wondered if the book might have sort of brought some attention back on you. Did you, did you have any fears about that? So I did, possibly in the back of my head. However, it just hasn't happened. And I mean, even if, the, if they want to read the book and get pissed off about it, I mean, that's just another sale for us, as bad as that sounds. <laughs> no, that's good. Yeah. Or well, would they read it, though? Because it sounds like that kind of group would only read things that um, correspond with their current worldviews. Yeah. So they won't voluntarily read something that challenges them. I guess few of us do, right? You know, I might have at the time, um, just so I could try to pick out like all the inconsistencies in it. But I mean, like, if I would read my own manuscript over and over again, all it does is tell a story. It's not trying to shove any alternative information or facts or whatever down their throat. In Life After Hate, the group you work with now, what what are your do you, do you talk about concerns uh, in the wider community in the states right now, for example, with with rising, uh, I suppose, toxicity on both sides of the ideological spectrum? So are we talking far right and Antifa as far as both sides of the spectrum? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so we do talk about that quite often. And a lot of the time I tell people, okay, so getting yelled at, getting hit, getting beaten up, getting stuff thrown at me at riots, that was never going to make me want to change. Like, I've never had someone um, try to threaten me and that's when I would think, oh, fuck, I need to change my ways. It just doesn't <laughs> happen that way. <laughs> you sort of double down, don't you? Yeah, so the thing is, just because all of this runs on fear, essentially, the thing is, uh, those tactics and stuff, they just don't work. They actually shove someone further into the mindset. I can think of it even on a really small level, because if my girlfriend says to me, like, you know you were snoring last night, my instant reaction, despite having no evidence to the contrary, is like, <laughs> no, I wasn't. no, I wasn't, I definitely wasn't snoring. And if she's later, she was like, oh, you weren't that bad, actually, then I'm like, well, I don't know. I think I might have snored a bit, you know. And it's amazing to see how quickly my crazy mind will jump from one to the other. And of course, snoring is not a really important ideological focus. So um, when it's when it's actually somebody's core beliefs, and you're shouting, "You Nazi!" I mean, you just threw a, gla a glass of water at someone, right? It didn't. I've always thought that, and they always they always say, "Punch a Nazi," and it's like, "But for who? 
who are you doing it for? For for you, right? To punch, so you've punched a Nazi, but who who is it really helping? Yeah, so I'm I'm sure you can kind of see that there's righteous anger on both sides. Yeah, everyone's punching all the time. I had a guy called Jesse Morton on here, and he unfortunately passed away a couple of months ago, and I don't know why because he was in his forties. Did you know of Jesse Morton? Had you heard of him? Yeah, I knew of him. I didn't know him very well though. Had you met him? No, but I wish I did. Mm, yeah, he was great, and he um um. He was he was one of the guys that planned or, or, or did the ingredients for the, the Boston Marathon bomb because he became an extremist, uh, devout Muslim, despite, I think he's, he was white, um, but got into that. And uh, he said exactly what you're saying, a really similar thing about like we go and like so many people come at it from like a left wing perspective sometimes and they say we're going to get these fascists and stuff. And it's like, but who's that helping? Whereas Jesse goes in and says like, hey, I hear you. You know, is that the kind of thing that you guys do? Do you, do you convert people? Do you try to bring them down from the edge? Um, you know, I, I've actually tried before. It all depends who you're talking to. Like, it depends on the person's readiness. This is literally just like addiction recovery. The person does have to want to change. Yeah, that's the thing. So then there's not really much. Is There must be something we can do. If you've got a neighbor or a friend or something who's who's gotten extreme, there must be some way to bring them down. You know, my mom and I have uh, been saying this recently, if it's your loved one, if it's your neighbor, your friend, um, just don't cut them off. Because the thing is, like, whenever they're ready to leave, they still do need that social support. And let's face it, they're going to burn a lot of bridges in the process. Right. That's really interesting. Another person I had on was someone called Katie Herzog. And she says she lost all of her friends because she said that she believes in biological sex, right? That she doesn't believe in, uh, like, the the you know, you can change your sex, which like whether you think that's controversial or not, I thought like all of her friends just left her rather than maybe trying to talk to her and saying, hey, where do we agree and all that stuff. And I just thought that's, it's obviously not changed how she thinks, not that she needs to change it or not. That's none of, you know, and I, just, I thought the same thing, like what, who is it for? Like when you just shun someone? Yeah, I think we're seeing a lot more of that with the polarized landscape recently, because I have noticed this too, right? Yeah, where are you where where are you seeing that a lot? Do you see it in your own friendships and stuff, or are you looking more sort of politically? For me, I am very selective about who I keep around, and rightfully so. But I just remember after Charlottesville, in particular, on Facebook, at one point, this is when I'd see a lot of the tension. So people who I never expected to hear some of this from, I was seeing it from them, and I remember actually uh, one relative of mine posting something saying. Anybody who's ever been part of this movement deserves to die. So I remember challenging her a bit, saying, so um, I'm out of this stuff now. Does that include me? Oh, no, no, you're different. And I'm like, how am I any different? Oh, did you get the impression that you actually taught that person a bit of a lesson? I think so. But I mean, I was literally just having a conversation with her. I wasn't trying to shove my opinions at her. I can imagine, though, if you if I felt that way, like, oh, I, you know, oh, I, I hope all these people die, um, like the, the racists and stuff. And then a friend of mine says, well, hang on, remember, I was like that. And luckily, I'm not dead now. And look at me now. <laughs> I think that would be a really powerful way to actually change my mind on that. It's always different if it's someone you know. Yes, that's what it is. Laura Manning, thank you for being on the edge. <laughs> thank you for having me. You know what, actually, I'll add in something funny for you if you want. So, hey, I've... I've literally been on the edge before. I've been skydiving and bungee jumping. So if we can count that. <laughs> oh, man. Thank you so much to Lauren for coming on. 
See, I'm doing the outro again. I did promise that at the beginning. It's happening. We're doing it. This is it. You're on it. Thank you all for listening. What did you think of that episode? Do let me know. I love interacting with listeners. Makes it feel like a community. Either leave a review on Apple or CastBox. That's a bit of a one-way way of communicating, although I do tend to read them out on here. Or come check out the 9pm UK time live video premiere of this episode on YouTube. Just find the On The Edge With Andrew Gold channel. The community is forming on there even if you just drop by and say hi in the chat that'd be lovely but i'd love to get your opinions about this episode there thank you for signing up on patreon i really do appreciate it there have been far fewer bonus episodes of late but i'm trying to rectify that it's tough to ask certain people to do homework before coming on the podcast that's the thing with the bonus episodes but in any case on patreon.com slash andrew gold you get some bonus episodes and two episodes a week without any ads Thanks to my latest patrons, Helen P, John B, Andrew S, Alyssa F, and Austin Stilwell, a very nice man who is a filmmaker himself. Apart from Austin, I've just added the last initial as I didn't hear back about shouting out full names. I don't want to start doxing people by accident. But thank you all. It means so, so much and keeps this whole thing going. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you next time when my guest, Emma Gannon, We'll be talking about social media and disconnecting from it all. You've been on the edge.